0: You can turn with me in your Bible to uh, Deuteronomy 32. I'm going to get there eventually. I'll touch several verses. They'll be up on your screen before we get there. Of course, you're welcome to turn in your own Bible to every verse we look at. But I'm going to spend most of our time in Deuteronomy 32. We are uh, in a second part of a series on understanding hell. We'll take a few more weeks, several more weeks on this really important topic, as I said last week, I, um, I'm really sobered um, in looking at these scriptures and it's just because they are so serious. This topic, this doctrine, this biblical doctrine is incredibly important and the idea that it's kind of been up for grabs for the last few years in the church is, uh, I mean it causes my heart to tremble because of how important this understanding is. And we we touched last week in an introductory way on, you know, reasons why we don't <clears throat> want to deal with this topic, and even from a, a preacher's standpoint, why you want to stay away from it. And, you know, people don't necessarily want to think about the issue of hell. They don't want to think about eternal damnation. And so... um you know, there's basically two ends of the spectrum. There's, there's the one side where you have preachers who are almost gleeful in their presentation of it with a really just an arrogant, mean spirit, and they just talk about hell uh, like they're glad about people going there. And, um, and, you know, that's abuse, in my opinion. That's an abuse of the Scripture, and it doesn't portray God's heart in the matter. And that's one of the main things we did last week was we established the way God um, is over this issue of hell and people going there. And we see a brokenness in, 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 in the divine emotions as is portrayed through the prophets and Jesus himself over people that are going, that are rejecting God's grace, rejecting his love and going to spend eternity in hell as a result. And so there's the one area where there's the abuse and so I think... And I confessed this last week, and I think many, many ministers fall in the same bucket because we don't want to be the guy that's abusing the scripture and and presenting hell in this mean-spirited way, so you just, on the other hand, you kind of can stay away from it. You just make it sort of a tagline, and you don't really talk about it, you don't really think about it, and you just sort of, it's just sort of there, you know. You just kind of say it, yeah, unbelievers go to hell, and... But you don't actually really consider what that means. You don't take it at the heart level. And and therefore, it doesn't doesn't impact us. It becomes this little Christian cliche. And then we live distant from the truth of that. Because if we get real about hell, and, and understanding the truths of the underworld of hell, of eternal judgment, It will strike a chord in our hearts that will change our approach to many, many, many things. And I realized, you know, and I shared this last week, that this whole move toward universalism that we're even seeing in evangelical circles, which is uh, universalism is, you know, basically everybody just gets to go to heaven. This whole move there is uh, really as a result of pulling up the tent peg of the concept of eternal judgment. And uh, I just made it real clear that, you know, when we stay away from these subjects, we don't talk about hell, we don't talk about wrath, we never talk about God's judgment, you know, we never talk about God's anger. That is extremely unhealthy and unbalanced itself, just as unhealthy and imbalanced as the guy that talks about it all the time and does it with a mean spirit. So we don't want to be on either extreme. What we want to do is teach the knowledge of God rightly and be true to the Scripture and humble ourselves enough to allow the Scripture to dictate to us what the truth of God is, and then we bow and we tremble under the truth of the Word. Amen. And so, uh, you know, we can't shield ourselves from these truths any longer. And I, you know, I confess that I, you know, I haven't been as straightforward with these in the last decade as I need to be. And I want, but I want to be. And uh, you know, I even saying things like God's anger, God's vengeance, and and talking about that, uh, it it I can I sense my own fear of man and sort of my own like apprehension to discussing those topics. Because I've been so radically impacted by the revelation of God's love and mercy that it's, that has completely transformed my life. And so then, you know, when you, when you've entered into confidence in God's love as, you know, as a, uh, in recognition of his kindness and his mercy towards you, you can sort of just drink from that well and then never look at the other well because, well, his wrath is, I'm not appointed to wrath, you know. I'm, I'm appointed to, to His kindness and His mercy forever. And so, But in that, there's this, there's this uh, how do I want to say it? This duality that we've got to deal with. And this is where I'm going to go today. Today, I want to lay out a biblical uh, explanation of, of this tension, this biblical tension. How can a God of love... Sentence people to an eternity of destruction and torment in hell. That's probably, as it relates to the question of hell, that's probably the number one thing that just doesn't compute with people. If God's so loving, if he's so good, how can he send people to hell? Surely his love will win out and he won't do that. And um, in investigating the scripture, I think that what happens is you'll realize that that even that question becomes a really humanistic question. It's it's a it's a uh, human sentiment based question. It's not based on the knowledge of God. It's actually based out of our own perceptions, and 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 chiefly this. We think that love and wrath cannot commingle. That's that's really what this thing boils down to. The goodness of God in the gospel to justify sinners through the merciful sacrifice of His darling Son, we cannot see how the God that would take such great lengths to release mercy and love is also the God that would sentence people to an eternal uh, state of destruction and torment. And so from our human vantage point, we, we ask the question: how can a God of love, if he's so good, send people to hell? And it's it's because we can't see how love and wrath can commingle. I want to take us down that path in the Bible and I want to lay out some verses that I think give us a biblical perspective on the issue and help us to answer it. And, and you know, I, I should say this before I say anything. His ways are not our ways. His mentalities are not our mentalities. Our, you know sentimental, sappy ideas of love, you know, pink paper and hearts and candies, that is not his version of love. And and what I want to say is this. His love is far more excessive than we've ever imagined. I mean, it is obviously infinite. It's eternal, but the intensity is what I mean. The excessive intensity of the love of God, it's more than you and I have thought about. I promise you. The radical aggression in the heart of God toward his objects of love, his people, that is uncharted territory. I mean, really there's I don't really I can't, I'm struggling for words to get our minds around this. I mean, it is radical aggression in love. The scripture uses terms like his jealousy, his zeal. You know, we think of jealousy, and we think of the you know, the schoolgirl. Who you know is sort of you know petty, and she's upset because her boyfriend you know talked to another girl, and it's just this little petty jealousy thing. God's jealousy is not that. I I don't. I don't. I, I mean, I really lack the language. But God's jealousy is fully just. It's fully righteous. And it is turbo, it is exponential of anything we comprehend. He is an aggressive, aggressive lover in his emotions. And His jealousy is completely in line with who he is as a God of love, and a God of desire, and a God of passion. His jealousy is, is just... You know, another expression of the, the truth, of the richness of his love. And beloved, we're going to find out that his wrath is simply the same. It's the same fire. Love is a fire and wrath is a fire. It's the same fire, just manifest in a, in a different way. And because we've lowered our view of what God's love is really about, And we've made it this sappy, syrupy, human, sentimental, you know, sort of sweet thing, pink paper and candies and roses. We've made that love. We imagine God, this romantic God of of sweet, syrupy, you know, just whatever, just this low version of love. And uh, it's just not what he is. Is he passionate? Yes. Is he romantic? Yes. Is he creative? Yes. Is he zealous? Yes. Is he jealous? Yes. His love is aggressive. He's a God of aggressive love. And from there, we can begin to rightly conceive of the doctrines of judgment, the doctrines of wrath, we understand his anger. The scripture actually identifies for us his anger as a function of his love. And we can understand eternal judgment. Now, I, I just want to just parentheses for a moment. Don't go home with your spouse today. Get in a fight and, and start acting ugly and angry and go, I just love you so much, I'm just mad. Don't do that. It's just a thought. I, I I don't know that you would do that. Your ways are not his ways. Okay? So I, I don't want to create an excuse for your unrenewed mind and your carnal behavior in your home. Amen. Hallelujah. Good. All right. I want to walk through a few verses. I want to I want to lay out. The, the idea of hell, I wanna, I'm gonna give a little bit of foundation. I'm gonna lay out some scriptures, some ideas, doctrine, a little theology here. I, I, I do this with fear and trembling because I do not want us to get bogged down in the technicality of this. I want us to remember this is real. There are real people's eternities that are at stake. And as we're talking about this, these truths should cause us to tremble. Does that make sense? I, I don't I'm I just I'm so Alerted in my own heart that I don't want to handle this in a, a merely technical way. <clears throat> so, where do we get? Where do we begin to get the idea of of the doctrine of hell? Where do we get this idea? We get it from the scripture. The Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew word that is that is used for hell is Sheol. Sheol. If you've been around, you've read the scripture much. You'll see that word. The New American Standard actually just uh, translates that word exactly over. It calls Sheol Sheol. Every time Sheol ex, ex, uh, appears in the New American Standard Translation, it's just Sheol. The New King James will take Sheol and make Sheol the pit. They'll translate it the pit, the grave, and they'll translate it hell. So the NAS just translates it right over. The New King James makes it three different things the pit, the grave or hell. The first time we see Sheol in the Bibles in Genesis 37. It's uh, Jacob after he thinks uh, Joseph has been destroyed. And he uses it in a, a way that gives us a little bit of insight into the word. It's Genesis 37:35. He says this, Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my son. So the father wept for him. So Sheol has a broader term, a broader understanding than just hell. It, it would most closely relate to the New Testament word Hades. Hades. And we'll talk about the New Testament words in another session. So Sheol has this implication of not simply hell, but it's hell. But it's also a place uh, where just uh, dead people go. And we're going to find out biblically that in the 65 times that Sheol appears in the Old Testament... Several, several of them are just talking about the place that people go when they die. The underworld, in a certain sense. With no sensation of righteous or unrighteous. For instance, Psalm 16, verse 10, David is prophesying, he's talking about Messiah. He's talking about himself, but he's really talking about Messiah. We're going to see this quoted in the New Testament when Peter is preaching about Jesus. Psalm 16, verse 10, he says, You will not... Leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. He's talking about in the place of the dead. He's talking about the impending resurrection of Messiah. Which Peter uses when he quotes Psalm 16, when he's preaching the gospel there in Acts 2. He uses this as the sign that Jesus is Messiah, the one that David was prophesying about. He didn't leave him dead, is the idea. It's not specifically talking about hell here. It's just talking about the abode of the dead. So once again, the Old Testament word sheol, it can mean a broader uh, idea than simply hell. It can be the place where righteous and unrighteous people go to. And I think that's probably what it is. And I think Jesus gives us clarity on it. And we'll go in, in detail and talk about that. Where he talks about Abraham's bosom, Lazarus and the rich man. And they both go to the abode of the dead. And, and, he's, and he gives us clarity that it seems that there is a place of rest. And there's a place of torment. And they can actually see each other. They can actually see each other in the, in the same place. The righteous and the unrighteous. It's an interesting thing. And we'll, we'll talk through all the, the details of that in a, in a different uh, session. Now here's the other thing about Sheol, when it's used in the Old Testament. again, it's 65 times. Sometimes it's only talking about it, uh, hell, or it's, it's essentially talking about hell in a figurative way. Uh, we might say in our modern vernacular in, in our modern vernacular, you know, man, it was like a living hell. I mean, just that was so hard. Uh, you know, they were in, you know, Vietnam, and it was a living hell. Well, David used that exact style phrase often. He's probably the most poetic, uh, the one that used the most poetic language about hell. And he said it many, many times. And he said it, he'll say it like this, like Psalm 18. It's after the Adullam years. He's come out of seven years of living on the run as a fugitive with uh, mercenaries and assassins, 3,000 of them, hunting him every single day, living in caves. you know. At one point in time, he actually goes and lives with the Philistines. (laughs) And so his commentary on the back end, and talking about God's deliverance in Psalm 18, verse 4, he says, The pangs of death surrounded me, and the floods of ungodliness made me afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. He's saying it was a living hell. He's not saying, you know, and I went down into the bottomless pit and then I came back out. Like he wasn't saying that and, 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 and hell came up and grabbed me. He's not saying, he's using it in a figurative way, in a poetic way. And he's saying it was a living hell. He goes, the Adullam years, they were very, very difficult. The sorrows of Sheol. So again, <clears throat> it can mean the abode of the dead it can be the place where the righteous and the unrighteous uh, are talked about going. We see that in the Old Testament. It's uh, it's used in a figurative way at times in the Old Testament. Um, But it is a radical mistake to imagine that this term Sheol is only uh, some sort of like state that people experience on earth. And I've heard teachers say that that really the concepts of hell are what the the worst that any human will experience on the planet in this age. There's no real eternal hell. Hell is suffering on this earth. And beloved that is a farce. That is such a lie. You cannot, you cannot come up with that from the scripture. Now, you can twist things, and you can, you know, do a little sleight of hand trick, and try to get there, but it is not what the volume of scripture describes. And when people believe that, they are in real, real danger—real danger. Let me show you the Old Testament. Hell is not describing simply. Where dead people go, righteous and unrighteous, it's not simply describing bad conditions on the earth. Look at uh, Psalm 9, verse 16. Here it is. The Lord is known by the judgment he executes. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. Verse 17. The wicked shall be turned into hell. And all the nations that forgot God. Turned into is just another way of saying, they shall go there. There are multiple verses like that in the Old Testament. Now, again, out of the 65 times that this word sheol is used, the... the, The doctrine is, it's identified, it's not extremely developed. Most of the development of the idea of hell is done in the New Testament. The idea of eternal destruction. Jesus says quite a bit about it. Paul says quite a bit about it. Jude and 2 Peter say quite a bit about it. And the book of Revelation says quite a bit about it. The doctrine is introduced and we're given the broad concepts in the old and in the new it is sharpened up considerably and, and the idea is very, becomes very acute and very pointed and we'll deal with the New Testament doctrine at a later time Now, one other point it just says we're laying some theological boundaries here you've got several that are Old Testament uh, that give us the Old Testament theology on it you've got Moses, you've got David Solomon, Isaiah, Ezekiel talks about it. We're going we're to look at Moses because he uncorks, to me, the, the basis of this concept. He's the one that actually explains it thoroughly from a theological standpoint, which in my mind is where everyone else would have their understanding. All the Old Testament writers, I mean, would have their understanding of it. One other point in the foundations of it, Daniel is the first one that identifies that hell is actually uh, a place people are resurrected to. Daniel 12, verse 2, he says this. Many of those who sleep, the idea of many is the multitudes of those who sleep. It's talking about everyone. It's just talking about it's a massive number of those that will be resurrected. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake... Look at this, the, the awakening of these that are in the dust of the earth, this is, that's the resurrection. Look at this, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. He actually describes the resurrection of the unrighteous to everlasting shame. Now that is of particular importance. Jesus in John 5 is going to take that idea and expand upon it. But that is of particular importance because of this. Someone who goes to hell, just like someone who goes to heaven, goes there with a resurrected body. A resurrected body enables them Feel, taste, touch, sense, smell, all of it. They have capacity in all of their sensory uh, compartments. And the resurrected body, it is, uh, it's everlasting. It's an everlasting body. Now, it's not a glorified body. The righteous are going to get a resurrected glorified body. The unrighteous are going to get a resurrected body that enables them to perceive in all their senses eternally. So it's not just sort of some soul thing. This is fully tactile. They touched and felt Jesus' resurrected body. You understand this. This is, this, is a, this is a huge point. It's not just some spiritual state of who knows. They are, there is a physical component, a spiritual physical component, which is what the resurrected body does. It enables them to interact spiritually and physically. There's a spiritual physical component to what they will experience in hell. Okay, now, as I mentioned before, the concept of God's love, God's jealousy, God's anger, God's wrath, and eternal judgment, all of those are linked, okay? What we tend to do in our, in our, from our human mentality is separate those. We go, well, love is like this, and wrath is like that. We put them into two compartments that never exist. And what I would tell you is love, jealousy, judgment, wrath, and the, the eternal consequences of both, I mean, uh, uh, the, both eternal consequences, I should say, are all part of the same hub. They're all part of the same core. They're not compartments that don't interact. Does that make sense? It's all the same deal. The manifestation is different, but the fire that's burning at the core of it is the same. Okay? Moses is the first one that's going to throw this idea out to us. In Deuteronomy 4, verse 24, he says, and and you know it, the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. The Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It is, it is, uh, it's something that we should take real careful note of that God is fire. A consuming fire. God who is love is a consuming fire. It's interesting how the idea of fire as an expression of God's being escapes us when we try to reconcile the reconcile the issues of love and wrath. But I'm telling you, love and wrath come from the same God who is fire. Getting that point landed—that He is a jealous God, a consuming fire—that that's who He is. That that uh, I mean, it's it's still as far as our human mentality, it's still a challenge. But that gives us a better basis to comprehend. How love and how wrath can exist in in the makeup of a of a God who is love? Because the fire that's kindling both of those of those manifestations, both of those attributes of His being, the same fire is kindling them. Uh, kindling them both. He is a consuming fire. He's burning at the core. He is extremely aggressive in His love and in His nature. He has this. I mean, this zealous, explosive, uh, it's hard to say component because he's not compartmentalized, but this, this piece of him that is explosive and jealous and aggressive. He's a consuming fire. You know what? We love it when the God who's the consuming fire is fighting for us. We love it. He's the avenger of the defrauded. We go, oh, thank you, God. Be my avenger. He's the one that will make every wrong thing right. Yes. We, We say yes to the God who works on our behalf in justice. Do we say yes to the God who is burning in fiery jealousy and releasing wrath? And in manifesting anger at sin and wickedness. Because that sense of justice that that we celebrate when it's on our own behalf is the exact sense of justice that God exercises when he's releasing judgment on the wicked. It's the exact same thing. It's just the manifestation is different. I called him an aggressive pursuer who is in no way interested or satisfied with sharing the object of his desire in any way with another. An aggressive pursuer to the extent that he is willing to act in extreme, overt, and direct ways to gain an individual's love. Let's be honest. Becoming a man and being brutalized and tortured by humans until you're dead that is extreme. Oh, the fact that the cross has become trite. It just it just testifies of how shallow we are. He gets tortured mercilessly at the hands of demonized men. He is ex- so extreme. Not imbalanced perfectly balanced and extreme in every measure and he goes all that way cuz he's a burning desirous passionate consuming fire of love and nothing will stop him he's aggressive so we've got to deal with the fact that he is not he's not going to be uh Prevailed upon. He's not. He's not going to allow something to inhibit his desire. He's not going to be thwarted. He will have his way. He will have his way, regardless of the opinions of man. I, uh, you know, there's, there's this uh, response. In my soul, I, it's, I, I bounce back and forth like, like a tennis match. You know, you get the guy and he's just wagging his head and he's just saying all these things about God and, and really just cursing the Lord. And on the one hand, I go, you know, you're an absolute fool. You're going to be destroyed. This thing rises up in me. This sort of self-righteous condemnation. And then on the other hand, I look at the guy and I go, oh, my God. You have zero idea who you're messing with. You have no idea who you're playing with. Because the Lord says that the wrath of God is being stored up. For the day of the revelation and the wrath, it's being stored up against the ungodly in Romans two, and it's just—it's like that that obstinate, rebellious, antichrist spirit wagging its head at God, siding with Satan, an accusation against God that humanity does, and it's storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And I just, I, you know, I, the, on the one hand, I get this self righteous and you're going to get it. And on the other hand, I go, oh, God, you're going to get it. Oh, mercy, God, mercy, because you have no idea who you're dealing with. Please, don't, I, I mean, it's just like, please don't, don't do that. Because you have no idea what's coming your way if you stay that way. And, and it's have mercy. And it's asking the Lord to release the justice, do that one on his son, and have this one come to Mercy. This consuming fire, this God who is a consuming fire. We don't have a concept of who he is. All right, let's now pick our story up in Deuteronomy 32, and I'm going to spend the rest of our time working through Moses' explanation. He gives us the clearest explanation of how these two concepts of love and wrath work together. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3. This is one of the songs of Moses. He's singing a prophetic song over Israel. He unleashes lots of prophetic information, particularly about the end of the age, all sorts of different things. It's an instruction and a prophecy. And in it, he actually explains the doctrine of Sheol, the hell side of it, so to speak, in in a very, very clear way. And he's, I'm going to take you through the journey and just... You know, work through how he gets to this point. So verse uh, 3, Deuteronomy 32, Moses is singing this. He says, I proclaim the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Now we know the name of the Lord, It's, it's the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, abounding in loving kindness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but by no means clearing the guilty. And that's the unrepentant guilty. By no means clearing the guilty. But, but bringing judgment upon the unrepentant and the guilty of the third and fourth generations. Is, and that's who he declared himself to be. But it, the seven attributes of his kindness and his mercy. So Moses, I proclaim the name of the Lord. And then he says, ascribe greatness to our God. Verse 4, he is the rock. His work is Perfect. He is the rock. He is established. He is sound. He is settled, and everything he does is perfect. His work is perfect. All his ways are justice. The New King James says, a God of truth. The NIV and the NAS are going to say, a God of faithfulness, which is a a better explanation of what Moses is saying as the one who's the rock. He's immovable, he's a God of faithfulness. He's going to do everything he said he was going to do. He's that God who's who's absolutely committed. Without injustice. Righteous and upright is he. His ways are perfect. He's faithful. He's just. He's righteous. He's upright. Verse 5. Speaking of Israel. They have corrupted themselves. They are not his children. Because of their blemish, or another translation says their spot, it's the the spot of sin, the spot of iniquity. A perverse and crooked generation. And so here we go. The God of faithfulness, who set himself out as the God of mercy, he goes, I proclaim his name, he is the God of mercy who will not clear the unrepentant. That's what Moses is describing there. It's what the Lord said to him when he declared his name. Exodus 33 and 34. Think about that. And he goes, okay, I declare his name. He's faithful to his name. He's faithful to his nature. He is always good. His ways are perfect. Now, in light of who he is, let's deal with this. That the people that he's, he has uh, created to love, the nation he's chosen, they have perverted themselves. They've chosen sin. They've rejected his ways. He, and he goes so far to say is this, they are not his children. And it's going to go on in 6, 7, and 8, and and, and he and he's going to sing to Israel and say, don't you know he's your father? What were you doing? Choosing sin and perversion. And we're going to find out just how intense it got. Look at verse 9. Here's the Lord's declaration. The Lord's portion is his people. He goes, you guys are my inheritance. You guys are my desire, my delight. The Lord's portion in his pe- is His people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. He found him in a desert land and in the wasteland, a howling wilderness. He encircled him. He instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. The Lord delighting in Israel. The Lord delighting in His people. As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. And the next verses are going to go to describe all this lavish provision that the Lord has given to Israel. God carrying them. God caring for them. God looking at them as the apple of his eye. Look at verse 15. But Jeshurun grew fat. Jeshurun, it's a its a—a a, a name that the Lord uses for Israel. It's, a, it's, a, it's actually a name of compassion and endearment. But Jeshurun grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, you grew thick, you are obese. Then he forsook God who made him and scornfully esteemed the rock of his salvation. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. Look at this. They sacrificed to demons, not to God. I'm not saying this in a a nasty way, but false gods are demons. We, We cannot sort of jump in this boat and say, well, yeah, you know, Islam and, and Hinduism and whatever the other ism is, it's about on par with Christianity. Those are demons. They sacrificed to the demons, not to God. To gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals, that your fathers did not fear of the rock who begot you you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, now he is a fiery God of jealousy. He spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be. For they are perverse generation, children in whom is no face. Faith. So he says, I'm going to discipline them. I'm going to hide my face from them. I'm going to see what happens to them. I'm going to allow these other gods to have their way with them. And the nations of those other gods begin to destroy Israel. Look at 21 now. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. Paul quotes this in in Romans 11. Talking about the gospel to the Gentiles and how the Gentiles will provoke Israel. God will show his kindness that he intended for Israel to the nations of the earth and it will grab Israel's attention is the idea. God is laying out in detail his redemptive plan as it relates to his love, his judgment, his wrath and his redemption of Israel. I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation... I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Look at 22. For a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. A fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn to the lowest hell. That word anger, the word is really nostrils or nose. The idea is, a fire is burning in my face. Isn't it interesting when you see somebody who's mad, you see it in their face? Because there's a fire in my nostrils. There's a fire in my breath. There's a fire in my face. What kind of a fire is it, God? It's a fire of jealousy because I've been provoked by my people who I've tried to reach out to, and they're going after other gods. They're worshiping demons instead of me and so my fire is kindled and it's burning in me. It's burning in my very breath is the idea. What does that look like? God burning in... I mean, mean just burning even so much so that His breath is burning. It's Isaiah, I believe, uh, chapter 30, verse 33. It says the. The, stru- the, the, the fires of hell are lit on fire by the very breath of, of, of the Lord. Why is that breath on fire? Why? Because the jealousy of God is provoked. Because the people that he loves, that he's made for relationship out of a desire for love, have spurned him and chosen to worship demons instead. This arouses the jealous flame of our God. This arouses the fire of his jealousy. And the manifestation is anger. Now He's not like you and I. We flip from love to anger. He doesn't flip. He stays fully in love, manifests jealousy, and manifests anger all at the same time. That's our God. We have, no, we have just almost nothing, no concept of this. And so then God gets tried in this court of public opinion where people sort of throw around. Well, if a loving God would never... You have no idea what a loving God is like. We don't know what a loving God is like. The aggressive attraction of our God towards us, it is enough to make us tremble, beloved. We don't know who we're dealing with. We have no concept of the extremes He will go to to have us. A fire is kindled in my anger, that's in the, in, in the flame of his face and the breath of his nostrils. And that fire, he says, and it shall burn to the lowest hell. It's that fire that causes hell to be on fire. David said, if I, if I descend to, to the lowest part of Sheol, you are there. Do you understand that hell is not devoid of the leadership of God? Hell is a manifestation of the leadership of God. Hell is no playground for the devil. Hell is the eternal place of torment prepared for the devil. And here is the just, oh, this is the one that just gets it. God creates hell for Lucifer and his angels and humanity chooses to rebel against God in obstinance and humanity takes on himself the very nature of Lucifer and therefore signs himself up for the very wrath that hell was created for Lucifer for. Mankind gets that very wrath. I always go here. If he made the place of torment brutal enough to torture an archangel of the highest rank, what does that, what's that experience like for us, for a human? People ask this question, they go, God would never make one of his creatures just knowing that they were going to go to hell. He would never create somebody knowing they would go to hell. They have a problem when it's a person thinking that way. They have no problem thinking about the devil that way. Isn't it weird how we jump into human sentimentality? It shall burn to the lowest hell and then he goes it shall consume the earth With her increase and set on fire the foundations of mountains. What's he saying there? He says, the very same jealousy that causes the fire of my wrath, that causes hell to burn, is the very same jealousy that when I release judgment and wrath on the earth, it's all the same fire. It causes hell to burn and it causes the earth to receive judgment. It's the same stuff. What it is, is we tap a part of his nature that we just don't have much understanding of and we have no idea what we've awakened in God when we awaken his his jealousy, his anger, and his wrath. Now, Proverbs 6 lays this out for us. I'm getting ready to land. Proverbs 6, verse 34 says this, and this is about the Lord. This isn't simply some little verse about a defrauded husband. This is actually about the Lord and I'll show you how we know. Jealousy is a husband's fury. Therefore, he will not spare when? In the day of vengeance. It's talking about God. He will accept no recompense, nor will he be appeased. This is a hard one. Though you give many gifts. This is talking about people who are going to stand before the Lord and they're going to start trying to talk their way out of it. God, give me another chance. I promise. I promise, God. Give me another chance. I'll really serve you this time. Please, please, come on. You're a God of love. Be appeased, be appeased. Tell you what, the conversations that are going to take place at the Great White Throne are going to be some of the saddest conversations in all existence of humanity. And God is firm in his justice, firm in his judgment, firm in the issue of the recompense of the sin of humanity. He's firm. He will not be manipulated. He will not be talked out of it. He will not be bribed. This thing is final, guys. This is final. That's what that's saying. You defraud God who loves you until you take on the very nature of Satan in sin. And what remains, the writer of Hebrews tells us, a certain terrifying expectation of judgments and a fury of the fire that will devour the adversary. That's it, it's done, it's final. He will not be talked out of it. He will not be appeased. You can't offer him anything. You can't manipulate anything. You can't make a you can't make a you know a bargain. It's over. I just need to get myself under control for a moment. He will accept no recompense. have mercy Lord (laughs) we've got to reconcile these truths of his love and his wrath beloved God's jealousy is an outcome of his love God's wrath is an outcome of his jealousy And the one who experiences jealousy will either break and yield to love or they will harden themselves and in obstinance reject love and receive wrath. I don't know if this truth is real to us, if it's even real to me, but I've got to get real about it. Because this has very real implications for people that we know and that we love and that we see every day. We see their smiles and we see their lives and we know where they're at with the Lord, not in a judgment. If they don't come to know the Lord, there's not another chance. penetrate it's got to penetrate let's just stand maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord and you need to know Jesus just want to throw this out to you maybe you need to know Jesus You don't know Jesus. He loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He died to save you from your sin. He died to take your payment of judgment. He's offered his life for yours. That's the gospel. And I just want to say it very clearly to you. There will be a day you will stand before the Lord. And you will stand before his knowing eye. Every thought, word, and deed of your life will be judged. And if you stand on your own merits. Without Jesus' sacrifice for you. The scripture is clear. You'll spend an eternity in hell. but if you relinquish lordship of your life to Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, if you receive the payment for sin that he's made, when you stand before the Lord, your sin will be counted as forgiven, cleared not by your own merits, But by the merits of Jesus Christ. His death. And payment for your sin on the cross. If you need to give your life to Jesus. I want to pray for you. And I know. We might be all believers. But I know there may be people here. And you're going. I need need to give my life to Jesus. If that's you. I just want to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand. And let me know that you're here. And I'll pray for you. Anyone say that's me. I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to make Jesus my Lord. If that's you, just raise your hand. Anyone? I see one. I see another one. Anyone else? Yeah, several. Anyone else say that's me. I, I need to give my, my life to Jesus. <sighs> Good. Good. I want to all pray together. I want to all pray together. Let's ask the Lord together. With those that are raising their hand, maybe it's your first time, maybe you're coming back to the Lord. Just pray this out of your mouth. Make this your confession. Make this a prayer of your heart to the Lord. He hears you. He hears you. Let's all say this together. Let's say this. Lord Jesus. Right now we come to you. We ask you to forgive our sins. We receive what you did on the cross. As payment for our lives. And in return. We give you our life. Jesus Christ. Be our Lord. Be our Savior. Change our lives. Fill us with righteousness. Thank you. For loving us. Thank you for saving us. We will serve you, Lord, all the days of our lives. Lord, I pray. I pray, God, let the truths truths of your word (laughs) let them work our hearts let them awaken our hearts God (sighs) let our hearts come alive in the revelation of reality oh we want to experience the joys of your salvation the love and the mercies of our great God and we want to comprehend the extent of the aggression of your love. (sighs) So we can digest the truths of your jealousy, your anger and your wrath. Now come Lord. Come near us. Come to us. Speak to us.